We have been clear that first, in the event that there is a renewed Russian uh, incursion, Russian forces going into Ukraine, uh, there is going to be a swift, a severe and united response. But we've also been clear that there are other things, we were just talking about this, that Russia could do, short of sending forces into Ukraine again, uh, to try to destabilize or topple the government, uh, cyber attacks, uh, hybrid means, etc. And there, uh, we've also been clear, there'll be a swift response, there'll be a calibrated response, there'll be a, a united response. And so what we're doing, and I've been engaged in close consultations with all of our European allies and partners, including in Europe last week, on the phone virtually every day, to make sure that across all of these scenarios, we have a clear and united response, and we will. That was Secretary of State Antony Blinken this week, pledging again that any move by Vladimir Putin on Ukraine will be met with clear, swift, and a united response from the United States and its NATO allies. It was one more sign of a looming crisis that has much of the world on edge. The Russians have massed as many as 100,000 troops on the Ukraine border, prompting the U.S. to pull diplomats out of Kiev over fears for their safety even as diplomats like Blinken threaten crippling sanctions and potentially much more to any Russian incursion. On Monday, the Pentagon announced it had put as many as 8,500 troops on alert for possible deployment in support of NATO. 77 years after the end of World War II, are we really on the verge of another ground war in Europe? Or does Putin have another game plan? We'll talk to John Seifer, a 28-year veteran of the CIA's National Clandestine Service who served in Moscow and later was deputy director of the agency's Russia House, the unit that ran spies targeting the Kremlin, on what he makes of the current crisis and what the U.S. should be doing to deter Putin on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have a couple of takeaways at this juncture on um, the Ukraine crisis. Uh, number one is Putin is a wily fellow, hard to read at times, but I do have a hard time believing that he's actually going to engage in a full-scale military invasion of Ukraine. I mean, the guy has been around for, what is it, 22 years since he first rose to power in Moscow. He's a survivor. He has a feeling of what he can get away with and what he can't. And so my guess is that we're looking at something less than a full-scale invasion, but you know, there are lots of other things, as Blinken was uh, was telegraphing there, from cyber attacks to uh, insurgencies to, as the Brits warned, a possible coup with pro-Russian Ukrainian lawmakers. And I think that's where this gets really dicey, because it's not the full military invasion, which we've obviously been trying to plan for how we respond, but something less that draws us in and perhaps for a longer period of time than we'd like to be in Ukraine. Yeah, look, Vladimir Putin has not proven to be 
you know, the world's greatest strategist. Like, I'm not sure he has a, a kind of a clear end game here. But what he is, is, is a master tactician. And he's controlling the narrative. We are in a position where we're forced to respond to him. And he seems to have all the momentum. I mean, I think the perception out there in the world is that Vladimir Putin and autocracies are winning. So I agree with you. I don't think we're going to see a full, you know, the, the, I don't think the tanks are going to roll into Ukraine um, and they're going to, you know, capture Kiev, you know, or, 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 or anything like that. But he is going to continue to be able to keep us off balance and destabilize the region and make it hard for us to advance our interests um, in that part of the world for a long time. And I don't see how they get around this. Um, I just, it's a very, very difficult conundrum dealing with Vladimir Putin. Let's not forget, though, that, that Vladimir Putin, as recently as 2014, did launch a kinetic war in Ukraine. So he, it's, it's, he's not against some <laughs> No, I, I'm not saying that there won't be a, an incursion. He might seize yeah. a little bit of territory. He might seize... You know, do something like that or, as Mike was suggesting, you know, cyber attacks, um, you know, some kind of hybrid warfare that 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 could happen. In fact, it, you know, it probably will in, in some ways. I agree with that. Yeah. And the impact of even that ba- a bad thing is 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 far greater than merely the tragedy of whatever happens in Ukraine. It includes and, and has to take into account the fact that since 2014, the kind of the the liberal world order in Europe has fractured significantly and is much more kind of on the brink than it was in 2014, with the UK having withdrawn from the EU, the America's commitment and involvement in NATO and the kind of the confidence in that alliance has has been significantly undermined in the wake of the Trump administration. And it's unclear whether or not the Biden administration has been able to kind of fully repair the damage. So I think it's important to understand that whatever happens today has implications far beyond simply Ukraine and has real implications for the liberal world order. And the point I was trying to make uh, in my first comments there was, you know, if we're talking about something less than an invasion, but, you know, some sort of insurgency, then that brings us into the world of counterinsurgency. And as our colleague at Yahoo, Zach Dorfman, reported last week, uh, the CIA is already training Ukrainian insurgents to fight the Russians on the ground. That is the kind of thing that can suck us into a conflict for years into the future. And you wonder, like, how much uh, American public opinion will be behind, you know, a protracted conflict um, fueled, you know, by American weapons and American counterinsurgency training, as well as all the other ramifications, cyber and, you know, economic tit for tat. Yeah, yeah. Just get get ready. Get ready to start hearing um, the terms mission creep and yep. blowback. Yeah, of um, course. You know, because once you start, you know, backing an insurgency, it has a, a tendency to sometimes, you know, get, get out of control. Now, you know, we were very successful in Afghanistan when we were, you know, funding 
the Mujahideen in their war against against the Soviets and, and giving them Stinger missiles, which were devastating against the Soviet um, Air Force at the time. But then there was blowback. <laughs> there was quite a know. bit of blowback, <laughs> you know, from the people who we were arming. Yeah. The Mujahideen. Yeah. Don't miss the uh, domestic implications of what's going on, which is to uh, essentially prepare for a spring and summer of relentless Republican attacks on whatever the Biden administration does to handle this, a la, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, it will be there will be a lot of hyperventilating about how the administration handles. Well, this. but you've got you've got two uh, divergent Republican views here. One is the traditional one from the likes of Mike McCall and the House and, you know, various, you know, Ted Cruz, even in the Senate, who want a muscular anti-Russian foreign policy. But then you have the Tucker Carlson's of the world who are effectively become, have effectively become a fifth column in support of Putin. I'm looking at our friend Tom Malinowski, the congressman from New Jersey's tweet just yesterday. My office is now getting calls from folks who say they watch Tucker Carlson and are upset that we're not siding with Russia in its threats to invade Ukraine and who want me to support Russia's, quote, reasonable positions. We'll be talking to uh, uh, John Seifer about this and what the impact of the, you know this line from Tucker Carlson and his cohorts have, but that's pretty striking and not something you heard too much of back in 2014 when we had the previous crisis when Putin seized Crimea. Yeah, and we actually are waiting for the results of a uh, uh, Yahoo News uh, YouGov poll where we polled, uh, did kind of a deep dive on on Republicans on a whole lot of issues, including foreign policy. And uh, one of the questions we asked is, who Republicans think is the stronger leader, Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden? Um, so we'll. Uh, That's we'll almost report. like a loaded is that stronger, question. Stronger in an arm wrestle, or is <laughs> yeah. it just? Uh... So I'm hoping that these results will be coming in, you know, during this podcast, and we will report them to you as soon as we have them. All right. Well, uh, before we get uh, to John Cipher, just one more beat on um, a uh, hardy perennial for skullduggery. Uh, the latest developments on January 6th, and. Uh, you know, this one was kind of interesting. John Eastman, who our listeners no doubt know, was the conservative law professor who drafted the memos that were effectively a game plan for the Trumpian attempted coup on January 6th, um, basically arguing that Pence could unilaterally reject the Electoral College votes and um, send the election back to the states so Republican legislatures could appoint, you know, pro Trump electors that would make him president rather than Joe Biden. You know, a lot of people have seen the Eastman uh, memos as, you know, some of the most alarming documents to emerge out of the January 6th investigations. So the January 6th committee subpoenas Chapman University, where Eastman used to work, to get his emails during the time he was representing Trump after the election. Turns out there are like 19,000 emails that are relevant to this subpoena. Eastman goes to court to block 
the subpoena from being enforced so his emails don't get disclosed to the committee. There's a hearing on his lawsuit in California yesterday before U.S. Judge David Carter. And in that, it emerges that Eastman had been deposed by the January 6th committee on December 9th and took the Fifth Amendment 146 times. And the Chapman University lawyer, who was a party to the case, actually throws Eastman completely under the bus and says that his emails representing Trump should never have been on the Chapman University computer server. They were improper, unauthorized, and the lawyer says, I liken them to contraband. Well, it it strikes me uh, that this is another way in which um, John Eastman maybe isn't the greatest lawyer um, <laughs> around, because you if you because because his argument um, is that he can't turn these emails over because they're protected by attorney-client privilege, right? Isn't that what Correct. part of what yeah, he's that's arguing? The core of his well, argument. Yeah. well, if you're trying to preserve that your attorney-client privilege, then you you might not want to do your kind of uh, legal moonlighting, personal legal moonlighting <laughs> yeah. on your professional work email, <laughs> exactly. because I think you probably waive those privileges as soon as you do that. So so that's that was not a smooth yeah. move. On as, so, as somebody tweeted, you don't want to plan a coup on your employer's email system. <laughs> Let right? that be a lesson to all of us. Yes, here. yes. I will not use the <laughs> Yahoo email system for uh, a, a when, coup you to, when you try to when you try to Pose me. <laughs> right, exactly. Just uh, just do it on Gmail, Mike. <laughs> exactly. uh, so I I would like to, uh, although I would like to comment on this. I've uh, assist, been assisting a, a team of people who've uh, filed a, a bar complaint against Eastman. So I can't really comment other than to say that boy, there are a lot of people who would like to read those nineteen thousand emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will be um, uh, devouring them when they if if and when they become publicly released, and uh, we'll report the results to all. All skullduggery listeners. And in the meantime, uh, this assumes that we're not in a full scale war in Europe, in which case, you know, we'll obviously be preoccupied. Um, but to help us try to discern where this is headed, we've got a great guest, John Seifer. So let's get to it. We now have with us John Seifer, a veteran of 28 years with the CIA's National Clandestine Service. John was stationed in Moscow for the CIA early in his career and then later was the deputy of Russia House, which is the CIA's Russia think tank and uh, more than a think tank, I believe. It was also uh, operational uh, about all matters, uh, Russia. (laughs) So, John, welcome to Skullduggery. My pleasure. Good to be here with you guys. So the big question right now is, what is Vladimir Putin up to with massing troops on the border of Ukraine? Is he going to invade or is there something else going on here? (laughs) You're asking me that question? (laughs) Yes. uh, That's why you're here, John. (laughs) Uh, Well, well, what's interesting is, you know, he's actually been quite quiet since the massing of troops. He hasn't said much. His foreign minister and other negotiators have said stuff. You know, there's been massive disinformation and narrative spread by the, the Kremlin and you know, every expert around the world has been sort of pontificating on what, what they think will happen, but he's been quite, quite quiet. And so, you know, when I look at it, I have to look at it sort of in the pattern of activity that has taken place 
over, say, the last 10 years. So, right. So he's been in power for 20 years now. He's no longer sort of a mystery to us. You know, this crisis now is a consequence of sort of mishandling Putin's activities and his aggression in the in the past. And so I think this administration is trying to do its best job as it can to you know ma- manage resources and try to deter something that Putin might do. So there's a number of things people talk about, military experts, and I'm not a military expert. He certainly has a you know much larger air force. He'd go in and destroy the Ukrainian military and then leave to try to destabilize Ukraine, something he's been trying to do for years and years since the 2014 invasion where he went into Crimea and in the east in the Donbass. Uh, he could try to seize all of Ukraine. But the bigger issue here really is he's trying to sort of rejigger the entire Western sort of security system as it's been, you know, since the end of the Soviet Union. You know, his biggest concern obviously is survival, staying in power, keeping control in Russia. Does an invasion of Ukraine actually enhance his political power in Russia? That's a great question. And I don't think so. I think in some ways, you know, he has, you know, taken aggressive action to get the West to come running to him. But in some ways, you can look at this and say, listen, he's actually the things that he most wants to happen. He wants the U.S. out of out of Europe. He wants a weakened or no NATO. And he wants to maintain control at home. And he wants countries on his periphery to be essentially subservient vassals to the Kremlin. But his activity has done just the opposite. So, right, NATO is more re-energized than ever before. Places like Finland and Sweden are even talking about joining NATO. Ukraine is now going to be probably forever anti-Russian because of these activities. And the U.S. is more engaged and may even send more troops and in, in support to NATO than we have done. So in some ways, you could argue that his bullying has, has led to the opposite of what he would like to have achieved. So I agree. I don't think it does solve his problems. I want to ask you what the U.S. response should be, assuming there's no off-ramp here, if the Russians do invade. But before we get to that, just to step back a little bit, and just for the average American, I mean, we're not likely to send, we're almost certainly not going to send U.S. troops into battle there. What are the stakes here, and why should the average American care? They're preoccupied right now with inflation, with COVID, with all sorts of other issues. Why is this really important? Well, I think that preoccupation with other things and sort of the infighting in our political sphere is one of the reasons why Putin thinks this might be a good time to do that. So, yeah, I think we should care because, you know, similar to when Saddam Hussein went into Iraq in the Gulf War or the wars in the Balkans. I mean, Kuwait. um, uh, Excuse me, Kuwait, of course. You know, the destabilization of the international uh, security structures is a big deal, especially in Europe. You can imagine if there is a real fighting war in Europe, the refugee flows into Western Europe. And we've seen how refugee flows from Syria have caused incredible political problems throughout Europe and, and things. So it, it will create problems with markets. It'll create problems, you know, long-term interest in terms of our strength and how we're seen overseas. The Chinese will be watching this to see how does the United States respond to threats to its interests and to supporting friends and allies around the world. So there's a lot of things here that are quite important. And it is, in fact, true that you know, a lot Americans are sort of very inward focused. We, we lost in Afghanistan. We've had trouble in Iraq. We've had 20 years of war. We've got political infighting. January 6th shows that you know we're really divided. A good portion of Americans actually support Vladimir Putin. So I think in some ways he sees this as a period of weakness that he can take advantage of. But we need to do a much better job yeah. of changing the narrative and, and making Americans realize this is quite important. 
I imagine there'd be there could be a real economic fallout as well. I mean, you know, whatever sanctions we impose uh, could have an effect on the global economy, on the U.S. economy, energy prices. Um, oh, yeah. So it, it could hit us at home in that sense, I guess. Well, Russia's a massive oil exporter. It, you know, it'll create serious problems in 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 Europe, and and so yeah, there, there's there's a. a a variety of, of after effects that will be felt around the world and in the United States. So I'm not sure I got an answer to my first question, which is, do you think he's actually <laughs> going to invade? <laughs> it's funny, like, I almost, you know, I, I'm an American, right? So I think like, well, he would be willing to take that kind of risk that he can't control. I mean, he could create an insurgency, he could, he could actually turn world opinion not just NATO opinion against him, massive economic sanctions. You know, a lot of people are sort of put up with his blustering and bullying. But if he actually invades another country and there's, you know, incredible bloodshed, Europe and, and refugee flows, I, I don't think that's something he's controlled. So I tend to think, no, I tend to think that he benefits quite a bit by just seeing what he's already learned so far. He's learned that Americans are inward focused and sort of wobbly. He's learned that Germany and France are really not part of it and, and can be sort of intimidated and bought off. You know, he's sort of learning whether China's behind him on something like this. Uh, there's a lot of things that he's sort of already learned. He learns that the world will come to him. He's sort of controlled the narrative about NATO expansion, about these type of things. So I tend to think he'll do what he's done in the past. As he creates a crisis, he escalates. We come to him with some form of negotiations or concessions to de-escalate the crisis. And he then gains step by step the kind of things he wants. It's, that's what I tend to think will happen. There won't be an invasion. But there's so many markers here that, that suggest the opposite. So what is the off-ramp? I mean, what can we give him so he saves face, but we don't give up, you know, anything truly important? <laughs> that's part of the problem is we've all, in the past, we've always tried to give him off-ramps and save face or not really push back when he's done it. And that's actually encouraged him to come again and again. He can create these crises. He can ramp up and create crises over and over again if we keep coming to him. So that's what's making this tough, is I think the administration realizes that they've made mistakes. Subsequent administrations have made mistakes by not pushing back effectively. And so at this point, there's nothing that's going to satisfy him. You can only be deterred. And so in this sense, I think we need to start to think about how we can threaten things he cares about, which is essentially his control at home and his money. So I want to circle back to something that you said earlier, which is that a substantial portion of the American public now supports Russia. And there is at least kind of one major news network that seems to be kind of promoting <laughs> promoting that support, raising the question, which is, is kind of a variation on something that Danny already asked, which is, why should the United States support Ukraine over Russia? Ukraine is a, is a sovereign country. Ukraine is a democratic country. Ukraine is a Western-leaning country. The support, you know, we, we have created an international order uh, since World War II that sort of pushes against countries, you know, invading their, their neighbors. And Vladimir Putin wants to push to this for old-fashioned sphere of influence where countries on his, his border are sort of vassals of the West. And so if we get back into that game of giving away countries and, and, and this type of thing, this sort of 19th century diplomacy, we've sort of lost the entire you know, way of looking at international incidents of security that we've, we've gained since World War II. And so I think there's, there's, there's a ton of reasons why supporting Ukraine makes a lot of sense. And I think I'm really, so, you know, the Trump administration and Trump's sort of view of Putin and of Ukraine has is, is influenced a lot of people in this country. And, and I think they're really looking at this in the wrong way. 
Well, let me just follow up on that because I just I wanted to ask, are you surprised at the extent and effectiveness of the kind of Russian propaganda misinformation war happening within the United States? Oh, yes. The, the Russians have been playing this this game of subversion and propaganda and disinformation for years and years. But its effectiveness is something that's really surprising. I mean, it, you know, it had an impact on our elections in 2016. Absolutely. And it's continued since. And, and sort of re rechurn these Kremlin narratives is is quite a quite a dangerous thing, and that's happening in you know places in Europe too. And so, yeah, I think it's surprising how effective it's been, and it's it's essentially the Trump administration folks that have sort of created that problem for us. We just did a poll, Yahoo News YouGov poll. The results just came in. One of the questions we asked was. And I'm sorry, we only polled Republicans for this poll, kind of a deep dive on where on Republican sentiment. And one of the questions we asked was, who is a stronger leader, Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin? 62% of Republicans said Vladimir Putin, 4% said Joe Biden. So that tells you something about where, about the mindset right now. Shame after- on them. <laughs> Vladimir Putin is, hates the United States. He's tried to undermine the United States. He, the notion that, you know, Donald Trump, that he loves Donald Trump and he loves Republicans is, is just silly. You know, he wants to do everything he can to, to weaken the United States around the world. He's attacked our troops in Afghanistan. He's undercut every foreign policy issue to include uh, foreign policy issues the Republicans have supported for years around the world. He's assassinating people around the world. Uh, it, it just, you know, that's incredibly, incredibly myopic, political, silly kind of thinking. On the other hand, there is a school of thought that the Biden's administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan was perceived as a sign of weakness that gave an opening for Putin to become more aggressive. Hundred percent. I think. I, I. You know. I. I think one of the reasons that Putin is choosing this time is. He knows from the previous Obama Biden administration that he got away with murder. That he would do this pushing back, we would actually come to and try to accommodate him. So there's been mistakes there in the past. Also, you know, yeah, the pullout and the the defeat, frankly, in Afghanistan has incredible ramifications. And I think he sees all of this as a sign of weakness. And so we have very few troops in, in NATO. There's sort of splits between NATO countries. The United States is incredibly inward looking. So yes, I, I don't want to suggest that this is a Trump era problem. This is a United States problem that's been over several administrations to include this one. So if you're right, and that Putin's ultimate, you know, game plan here is not to actually invade, but perhaps create an insurgency or stoke an insurgency. And we have the British intel over the weekend that they may be planning some sort of coup using pro-Russian lawmakers in Kiev. That sounds like more of a issue for your former agency than the U.S. military. Does this become a CIA problem? And if so, what what is the CIA doing and what should it be doing? Well, Russia's activities take a much wider range of issues than just kinetic military, right? And we've seen this. We've seen the cyber attacks, the destabilization, the disinformation, the sabotage. And so... I think anything that we we can be sure of is that the Russians will continue to try to weaken the Ukrainian government, destabilize the government. They'll continue with cyber attacks. They'll continue with all this sort of sabotage and disinformation. And like you said, you've seen these intelligence reports that they have groups inside Ukraine. They're looking to foment fake crises. 
there's a number of these kind of things. So yes, I think the CIA has been involved. Its paramilitary arm has been involved in trying to train and work with Ukrainian units to try to, in case there is an invasion, to create an an internal insurgency that caused some pain to the Russians. I think they're going to continue to do that work, even if the Russians don't invade, so that they at least strengthen some form of deterrence. Because I think one thing we've learned here is Vladimir Putin can do these things again and again. And until we create a reasonable deterrent effect where he is threatened and afraid to do these things again and again, there's no reason why he won't. Is the playbook to go back to what we did in Afghanistan in the 1980s? Stinger missiles, fund an insurgency, fuel a proxy war in Ukraine? I think there is if he goes in. Yes, I do think there no, is. No, you say if he goes in, but what if it's not a full-scale invasion, but, you know, a, an insurgency or a coup or, you know, actions to destabilize the Kiev government? Well, my 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 take is and it's, it's one I, you know, I haven't heard others say is, again, I don't think he can be satisfied and bought off Putin. I think he can only be deterred. And so far, he sees us as weak and therefore is not deterred. And I think as a former, as a Czechist, a former KGB officer, he really values and understands sort of the covert world and the covert war. It's something that he's been sort of, just political warfare has been against us for the last, the last 10 years. I think you know, he's been in his country telling his people that the CIA and Americans have been interfering in his government. We've been supporting protesters. We've been supporting the opposition. He blames all of his economic problems on the West and on sort of problems like this. You know, frankly, we haven't been, and he knows that. But we can. We can provide money to opposition. We can provide support to people who are working against him. We can provide all of these kind of support and weapons in countries around around his periphery. He understands he's using covert means to destabilize his neighbors. We have not done the same. I think he takes that seriously. And I think one of the things we can do to, to deter him is make it clear that if he wants to play that game, we've sort of stayed away from messing with Russia, but we certainly can mess with Russia. We can make him worry about, uh, you know, not dying in bed as an old man. So I'm wondering if we can talk uh, real quickly about the kind of the timeline of what we're facing right now. How critical are we in terms of timing right now with regard to a possible invasion of Ukraine? Is this something that could happen in the next 24 hours, 48 hours, or is this going to drag out all for the for the next four or five months? Just did an Atlantic Council uh, talk just before this with some military experts to include some military experts from Ukraine. Their view is as large as this, this grouping of Russian forces is in Belarus and Russia around Ukraine, it's not quite ready yet for a full sort of scale invasion. That more likely in the next two to four weeks, it will, with troops and uh, reserves and things coming up and an exercise in Belarus, in Belarus, it could take place too. So they tend to think that, you know, it, an invasion today, tomorrow, the next day is very, very unlikely. But perhaps he would be ready to do so in, in two to two to four weeks. And so, you know, that's that's the best sort of advice that I've heard. You said before that the Obama Biden administration's response to the annexation of Crimea was not up to what needed to be done and that that also fueled perceptions by Putin and the Russians that they could get away with it. Now, of course, Obama did impose sanctions at the time. They talked them up at the time, just as, you know, the Biden folks now are talking up the prospect of crippling sanctions. 
What was not done that should have been done in 2014 when Putin took Crimea and doesn't even go back further with the uh, invasion in Georgia back in 2008? I mean, Tell us where you think U.S. policy fell down over the years in standing up to Putin. I, I think that goes back to 2008. So I agree. Since since the Georgia thing, I think we've misread the war that Putin has been foisting against us. In the Russian doctrine, there's almost no difference between political warfare and kinetic warfare. It's all, all sort of one and the same. It's part of softening up your enemies. And so since 2008, He's gone into he's gone into Georgia 2014 into into Ukraine. Every time that he's done that, we've seen that as something that okay, if we push back a little bit but leave him room to accommodate him, he may come around, he may change. The Obama administration even talked about a reset of rechanging, you know, the sort of whole our work with with Georgia and with uh, Russia. And I think we've misread Putin. I think he's been at war with us for ten years, and we continue to think that. If we just do things a little differently or we just don't push too hard, he will change his tune. He has not changed his tune. He's continued to ramp up and take advantage of any weakness we've shown. And I think this crisis is sort of part and parcel of that. He, he realizes that he's benefited by these full crisis by stepping up some sort of crisis and then asking for some sort of support and help to bring them back down. And so, yes, I think... Yes, we had some sanctions, but by no means were they crippling or painful enough to the to the Kremlin to change their behavior in any way. And so, uh, you know, we're stuck where we are. And so that's why I think this administration realizes their fate and they realize that they need to try to show some credible means of pushing back and deterring. And it's not clear whether they have the tools to do that. And so that's why we don't know. So the other thing that, that goes back to 2008 was the Bush administration's decision to invite both Georgia and Ukraine into the so-called MAP, the Membership Action Plan, for ultimate membership in NATO, something that um, was actually opposed by some of our NATO allies at the, at the time. Is there any sense in which that was a mistake or mishandled in ways that have fed Putin's paranoia, or was it the right thing to do and we just had to deal with the consequences? That's an excellent question, and I think uh, Fiona Hill talks about that in, in her op-ed today in the New York Times. And she talks about being a, an advisor to Bush at the time and warning the Bush administration that the map would really be something that was seen as an aggressive and negative thing to Putin that he might react to, and he did. And so, yes, I think you know we can't look back too much, but if we look back, we can say that perhaps we should have understood that that would be seen as sort of a red flag to Putin for him to take action. Now, of course, we talk about NATO expansion. Essentially, countries join NATO of their free will because they feel threatened by Russia. That's why we're seeing traditionally neutral countries like Finland and Sweden now talking about considering NATO because of Russian action. So, frankly, it's Russian action, Russian aggression that is the cause for this. But if you look back at 2008, there was no means you can argue that we didn't need to be so clear about it, so pushing sort of Georgian and Ukrainian you know, NATO expansion at that time, we could have been a little more subtle and worked with Russia on that. We, we don't ever want to say that they they can't or they shouldn't join NATO, that other countries can't, but but it, it definitely created the problem that we're sort of living with now, yes. And at this point, is there any argument that we should be saying to Putin, look, this is voluntary on their part. If they want to join NATO, then they can join NATO, but this isn't going to happen for 
two decades or 25 years because they haven't proven that they are ready for it in terms of democratic progress, in terms of dealing with corruption, those kinds of issues. Is that part of the off-ramp here? Yes. And I think essentially we've been saying that. You got to remember with this crisis, it's completely manufactured out of whole cloth. There was no no discussion about bringing Ukraine into NATO. There was nothing happening, no decision, no meeting, nothing that created this. It's all out out of Putin's desire to sort of push this crisis at this time. I think, but the crisis is creating a sense that, you know, a de facto sense that, you know, Ukraine is probably not going to join NATO anytime soon, or maybe never because of it's, it's becoming more and more clear to the West that Putin is willing to, to, to fight over this. And so, you know, we, as a, is the United States don't want to be seen as sort of, again, giving in to Putin and giving him something that, you know, he says he wants. And that's part of the problems he's pushing here. He's saying he wants NATO's and U.S. responses in writing, meaning he wants us to write down that NATO, that Ukraine will never join NATO. And uh, frankly, we, we won't do that. So, you know, there, there's still this, this crisis continues. If I could just expand on this, because most of the media reporting has been about Ukraine and NATO, but but Putin's demands stretch much further than merely Ukraine. They include everything from where extraterritorial missiles can be positioned to kind of British troops in Poland and Estonia. I'm, I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on how this is about more than just Ukraine. Yeah, it, very much so. It's more than Ukraine. I mean, you know, it was George Kennan that said, you know, Countries on Russia's periphery, you know, either are going to find themselves as vassals or enemies. And if they're not one, they're going to be the other. And so this is this is something that's happened throughout Russian history. But what Putin is really pushing for here is to essentially, you know, go back to the the fall of the Soviet Union and sort of restructure the entire security structure in the West as it's it's happened. He wants essentially wants to kill NATO again when when. Rasmussen took over as the chief in NATO years ago. He met with Vladimir Putin and reportedly said to him, one of my goals is to improve relationships when he met with Putin, to improve relations with Russia. And Putin reportedly said back to him, and sir, my goal is to make sure that your organization no longer exists. And so Putin forever doesn't want an organized United West with the United States in Europe. He wants the United States out of Europe. He wants a weakened NATO, and and he wants you know these issues to be pushed back. So he's asking for the sun and moon and stars here, and hoping that you know those threats, uh, you know, are are such that some people might realize that you know, hey, maybe it's it's time to start accommodating some of these things that he wants. Who was it that Putin said that to? Rasmussen, who was the NATO, uh, what do they call him, commander in chief, or what are they, the head of NATO? Yeah. So if you were back at Russia House right now. What would you be saying? What would you be advocating? Well, Russia House is about, you know, running espionage and running sources in Moscow and around the world, Russian sources. And so I pray and hope that we have the kind of sources that can give us insight into what the Kremlin is thinking. So we have some some sense of, of you know, where Vladimir Putin is at this time. And so do we? Well, that's a great question. I, I don't know. And I, <laughs> I should I shouldn't know. But I, I worry about it, frankly. I mean, we've seen, you know, at, from the last administration that there was such push against our security service, against the CIA, against Russian issues. You know, there was a reportedly, you know, one of our top sources in the Kremlin had to be pulled out because of some of Donald Trump's comments. And so, uh, you know, I, I worry about that, but I, I certainly hope that that's the case. I do think that we need to continue to support the paramilitary to our 
people on the, the close to Russia, the, the Ukrainians and others. And so, you know, CIA is, is essentially a value add organization. It only at the, helps at the margins and it should be of intelligence to help, you know, bigger policymakers and the military and others make decisions. And so I don't want to suggest that, that this is a CIA game here. But I, like I mentioned before, I do think the CIA has not been engaged in covert action against Russia and could very well do so. I want to uh, just switch subjects uh, very briefly about another CIA matter that surprised Uh a lot of people just last week, which is the CIA's report on Havana syndrome. Havana syndrome, of course, is the name given to, you know, as many as a thousand cases of former intelligence officers, diplomats, and others who have reported all sorts of strange medical ailments that was believed by many to be the result of a bombardment of microwaves, something the Russians had been doing for decades back in, Mm -hmm. you know, goes back to the 1950s and Cold War era stuff. And the CIA said most of the cases were unlikely caused by a foreign power, and a majority can be explained by environmental causes and undiagnosed medical conditions or stress. You obviously would have known a lot of people who served in Moscow, probably served in Havana as well. What's your take on what the CIA had to say about this uh, last week? Well, I tend to think that that report and the reporting about it is a little muddled. And I think there's some bureaucratic issues here that sort of have to serve as the basis of looking at that and trying to understand that and put it in context. And so the previous administration in the CIA and the State Department did not seem to take this seriously. And a lot of people were getting hurt and not getting the medical support they needed. When Burns came in at CIA and when Biden came in, they tried to support this and, and help the people who, need, who needed help. And so one of the things they did is they, as you would expect, they reached out to their population and said, okay, anybody who thinks that they might have some of these consequences, might've been hit, might've been hurt, have med- medical issues should report in to us. And so there's people who, you know, you've seen reports, our friend Mark Polymeropoulos, others who believe they were hit with this overseas. There's reporting of it happening in, in Belgrade and in Vietnam and in India and in Vienna and other places. But a lot of people came out of the woodwork. Thousands of people came out and said, listen, I, you know, I've been having vertigo. I've been having problems. And you can imagine in a, in a workforce, there's people who've been in Afghanistan and in Iraq and have all sorts of medical issues came out of the woodwork. A bureaucracy who has to pay the medical support for this on that line item on Havana syndrome has to look at those and say, okay, all of a sudden we have, you know, 1500 people who say they have medical problems. Let's look at these. They look at them and they said, which is sensible. Most of them don't seem to be to fit the profile of people who are overseas and hit by this weapon at this time. But a small handful appear to have been this. So so if I read it right, there's, you know, 40 or 50 who they believe still unanswered, may have been hit by some sort of weapon overseas. Yes, they have to rule out all the other ones who rightly came in and said, yes, I'm having problems. I've been overseas. Perhaps it happened to me. They look, they say no, but there's still that core of people that is unexplained what exactly happened to them. And so I think they will continue to investigate. Okay. You served in Moscow you know, what's your bottom line here? Do you believe there was such a microwave weapon 
What was it? What does it look like? How was it deployed? Well, Michael, you can see my white hair. I'm convinced <laughs> that my time in <laughs> Russia was because they were zapping me with all kinds of things in microwaves. I went to <laughs> Moscow with a full head of brown hair and left with white, with white, <laughs> with white hair. Um, You're so, living yeah, I mean, proof of the uh, impact absolutely. of Havana syndrome. And, and right. so there is a, you know, there's a, there's a long history of, you know, increased cancers, people from who've sported in Russia. There's been, you know, a variety of technical and, and sort of chemical attacks that have taken place in that place. I w was hit with, uh, with uh, what they called spy dust at the time, which was a counterintelligence tool that they, this sort of clear, dust that they would put on people to 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 look at things which had carcinogenic effects and so the russians over the years have never hesitated to use tools against us that might have harmful effects usually they did so because it had an intelligence purpose it, it allowed them to either find you know spies in their midst or it allowed them to listen into you know work we were doing in moscow all of these other things i'm not aware of them using weapons simply to harm diplomats with no other purpose. So this seems anomalous and unusual. But do I believe that these people who are in these places were hit by something that that are is likely a Russian thing? Yes, I do. Because you know there many of the people who are of the are not ones who we still don't have answers on worked on Russia issues in specific places where the Russians have large presences. Um there's a number of things that, so I I I you know, we have to wait and see. I don't want to say, but I, I do think this story that where the CIA says it's it's not some sort of attack. Let's wait and see. I, I, I don't think that that's the final answer. What was this spy dust they sprinkled on you? And how oh, they you've been it? around. You know this. So it's, it, it, they call it Metka, and it has a, a chemical name. And so essentially what they would do, say I was working in the overseas embassy, and the, the Russians intelligence services think I'm someone who might be handling Russian spies in their midst. As they meet me, they might come and they use this sort of um, tasteless, smellless dust, if you will, or, or chemical tag that they would then put on my car wheel or in my house and it might, so that I get on, on me and it has a tag for me. And then what they would do, say on the weekend or something, they would go through their embassy and they would go into people's offices and they had a means to check for this chemical tag. And if they saw, say, an Andre's office, that John Cypher's chemical tag is in his office, but Andre's never reported meeting with John Cypher, they would open a counterintelligence investigation on Andre because he obviously is talking to John Cypher and has not been reporting that he's been talking to John Cypher. So they use this as a as a counterintelligence tool. And when we, you know, we would we had a means of testing for this and looked at it and and you know believed it was it was carcinogenic. And actually, had had done diplomatic demarches over the years to the Russians for their use of it. Hmm. So you, this was discovered in real time while you were there. Yeah. Yeah. And and not just in Russia, outside of Russia. Hmm. Was this the '90s or before that '80s? I don't know if they've continued to use it. Certainly, in the '90s, they were using it. Yes, they were using it in the '90s. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange. Yeah. I mean, I. You know, it's hard to imagine what is the what's the upside of, of Russians actually just harming American diplomats and intelligence officers. But, you know, they, they've used harmful means to collect intelligence in the past. And, and I think there's going to be something here more that we're going to learn. Yes. Well, maybe maybe Russia House should come up with a plan to uh, <laughs> drop spy dust on the uh, Russian troops amassing uh, at the border of Ukraine. Anyway, uh, John Seifer, I want to thank you for your great insights into this 
into what's going on with the Russians and, and, your, uh, dogs too. and your dog <laughs> as well. Uh, <laughs> we will definitely want to have you back. My pleasure. Thank you.